Welcome to Heaven and Earth. I'm joined by Brad Littlejohn, and I think we're going to talk about political theology, Richard Hooker, maybe John Davenant, and we'll see how it goes. Um, as we start, Brad, do you mind introducing yourself? Sure. So I'm uh, Bradford Littlejohn. I uh, live in upstate South Carolina, where I grew up. I not spent, there's a long period in my, in my life when I did not live here, but I'm, I'm back where I grew up. Uh, I have a wife and four kids, and I do a lot of research and writing and speaking and um, academic entrepreneurship, as I call it. So, Which I'm sure is very lucrative in our society. <laughs> uh, okay, so you have a number of things I'm, that you do that I'm super interested in. Um, one of my favorite characters in, in church history, is that the right way to put it, in the church that Jesus built, is Richard Hooker. And as a Baptist, that's probably odd. But I maybe would like to see, like, if you could give, like, just kind of the elevator pitch about who Richard Hooker is, and then maybe we can dive into some, like, interesting topics about what he's all about. Um, so, like, just a two-minute pitch. Who's Richard Hooker? Why is he someone that you should pay attention to? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, many people might say something like, you know, Richard Hooker is to the Anglican tradition what uh, John Calvin is to the Reformed tradition. The foundational... Um, most important theologian near the beginning of the movement. Uh, now that comparison is flawed because uh, at Hooker's time, the Anglican tr tradition, there isn't an Anglican tradition. There is the uh, Reformed Church of England, Ecclesia Anglicana, which is called Anglican because it's, it's English, um, but it didn't, it wasn't an ism yet, right? It was, uh, it was just a particularly English way of, English branch of the Reformed Church. Uh, and so Hooker, you know, has some disagreements with Calvin about various things, but he sees them as part of the, you know, same broad family of churches. As time goes on, for various reasons, the, you know, Reformed and certainly the Presbyterian and Anglican traditions develop in, in, in different ways. And, and Hooker becomes kind of the patron saint for a period, at least. In the later, later 17th century, early 18th century is kind of Hooker's greatest fame, or he really is kind of this patron saint of the of the Church of England. Uh, his star is sort of dimmed, um, well, his star dimmed a bit in the 19th century as you had the, the Anglo-Catholic movement um, that sought to sort of make Anglicanism more Catholic. At the beginning, they kind of tried to co-opt Hooker into that, uh, but then eventually they were like, yeah, he's really too reformed for us. Um, and then in the 20th century, people just don't read Hooker because and, and uh, especially in the 21st, because people are, you know, well, frankly, somewhat illiterate and Hooker is hard to read. Um, he's, um, you know, he, he he suffers the the drawback of having written originally in English, unlike Luther and Calvin, who because they wrote in other languages, we get to read them in nice modern 21st century translations. Hooker's writing in 16th century English, which is very difficult to, to access. So one of the projects I've done is a sort of, it's a modern English, you know, translation of his work. And remind but, me, you did the first four books right and then the there's some more yeah we're, yeah, we're, a, bit, we're a bit stalled out on, on book five right now though someone just contacted me wanting to help um get that jump started again so so stay okay. tuned but hooker's dates i didn't mention that 1553 uh in 1553 to 1600 so his life almost spans it almost overlaps entirely with the reign of queen elizabeth she okay. comes to the throne when he's five years old 1558 she dies uh like three years after him um so yeah so he's an interesting character he's 
working he's working at a time where you probably have two movements in the church you have sort of that the puritan movement and then you have maybe those who are maybe wanting to return too closely to roman practices i don't know if he's, he's not really a third way but he, he does seem to strike a balance that is probably useful today when we're a little bit um it's the right word we're very primed to want to fight each other over small differences i think that he's kind of helpful and that he's a, almost a synthesizer and gets to the heart of, at least in my reading of him, gets to the heart of things. Um, so he dies at about, was he 46 or 47? Yeah. I guess he would have to be. So he's pretty young. Um, so how how did he write one of the most important works in English theology if he died at whatever it was, 46, yeah. 47? Yeah, well, he doesn't complete it um, exactly. Uh, he begins the laws of ecclesiastical polity probably in 1590 or so um, is the general consensus. Books one through four are published in 1593. Book five ends up being longer than books one through four combined. It's published. Books six through eight were um, incomplete at the time of his death, and they kind of dripped. Well, actually, let's see here. Six and eight come out in 1648. In the midst of the English Civil War, Book Seven doesn't come out until 1662, and there are there are reasons for that timing um, that we can go into. But um, of those, seven is substantially complete. Eight is complete, more or less in substance, but a little bit sloppy in form. And six, all we have, it appears, is you know really what were supposed to be the first few chapters of book six, whether the rest was written and lost or just never written. We don't know, but oh, interesting. I, I would I uh, just go back to something you said though. I would, I wouldn't say there was, yeah, I, I wouldn't say that um, there's a group at his time that's trying to move things in a more Catholic direction that you do have that, the kind of Laudian movement, the sort of um, predecessor of Anglo-Catholicism um, in the 1630s at Hooker's time though, the um, I would say what you do have, the, the, there's a strong, the biggest dividing line is over church polity, right? Mm. So the Church of England is has episcopacy. And in the beginning, it has episcopacy because that's what it had before. And it was um, convenient. It, it was it was felt that the church could be more effectively reformed by, you know, replacing bad bishops with good bishops than by getting rid of episcopacy altogether but um there was not a sense that episcopacy was absolutely um essential to maintain um they were you know as time went on the english were sort of more and more like you know grateful that providentially the episcopacy had been maintained in england it hadn't been able to be maintained in most of the continental reformations but um you know in the 1560s 1570s everyone or really in the 1560s Everyone's fine with episcopacy and nobody is, you know, you know, like thinks nobody thinks it's amazing or nobody thinks it's terrible. But then things get really um, fractured in the couple decades that follow where you, you have a, pre, a Puritan Presbyterian movement that denounces episcopacy as intrinsically unbiblical. And then in response, by about 1590, you start to have a group within the Church of England that says, no, episcopacy not only is it legitimate, but Episcopacy is the only legitimate form of church government. So uh, first you have the Presbyterians saying on, only Presbyterianism is legitimate. Then you have 
the kind of uh, avant-garde conformists is what historians call them, who say that uh, only episcopacy is legitimate. Hooker's trying, that is where he's trying to thread a middle way, which is to say he thinks episcopacy is a historically, you know, a practice that goes back to the very earliest church. There's every reason to maintain it, but um, he's not going to claim that it's biblically required. And he wants to, he says the Presbyterians are wrong to insist their form is biblically required, and we shouldn't commit the error in the opposite direction of insisting that our form is biblically required. You know, I saw a quote by, um, and that might surprise you, uh, John Piper recently, something to the effect that the New Testament is surprisingly quiet on the form of church polity, meaning it says very little on the exact structure. It might say a lot about what a pastor is and what a deacon is, but exactly how it should be structured. And it kind of strikes me that, I mean, just going at the more practical level, if you look at all the Protestant groups today, there's Congregationalism, Presbyteries, there's the Episcopal model, and they all seem to sort of work together and see their model as being biblical. But, I mean, it's, it's it would be really hard to say that one of those are necessarily entailed by the Bible, um, just as a big picture yeah. observation. Yeah, I mean, because not only is the information that we have somewhat scattered, um, but, um, I mean, first of all, even what we do have, you know, quite often, almost nobody nowadays is is really following strictly. I, you know, the office of deacon is first instituted. It seems like their primary task is this, um, you know, serving tables, um, right. which is not certainly not what deacons become in the um, in the Pauline Church, in, in, you know, in the Anglican tradition, or, or uh, and then you know, Presbyterianism kind of says, well, deacons are more responsible for the kind of the physical material well-being of the church, elders the more for the spiritual. But uh, even so, it's, it, you know, Presbyterian deacons don't look like, you know, Acts, Acts 6 deacons, right? Um, but the other thing is that it's not, it's not obvious always which features of the, you know, when we do get these glimpses of New Testament polity, which parts of them are, um, are part of, you know, the apostolic, the uniquely apostolic mission. Uh, in which parts are kind of supposed to be a long-term structure there, you know, the, I mean, the apostle's own office is the most significant feature of church polity that we have, right? There's these 12 people that were, that have this unique divine calling to, to spread, spread the gospel and govern the church. And uh, by any Protestant, well, I mean, by most Protestant accounts, that office is gone. Like that part of New Testament polity is no longer part of our, our polity. Um, some would argue for an apostolic succession in which basically the, even so not the full authority of the apostles, they can't, you know, their, their ability to write inspired scripture is gone, but much of the authority of the apostles maybe carries over in the episcopate. But the, the point is that you're not only dealing with the fact that the New Testament evidence that we have is sort of scattershot, but the New Testament doesn't tell us, by the way, this, this part here, this is a temporary office that, you know, ends after the, you know, the first century. Um, it doesn't say that. So you kind of have to apply your own hermeneutical grid, your own assumptions as to which parts of the New Testament witness are definitive for polity today. And I think you're right that most people have kind of gravitated toward uh, a more of a live and let live on polity. It's, it's very it's very hard to find a Presbyterian or a Baptist, at least, uh, who thinks well, I don't know. Is it? Maybe it's just people I hang out with. Well, I mean, there's, 
Yeah, there's different groups. I would say like in Baptist circles, that's kind of true. But um, nine, like Mark Dever's ministry, Nine Marks, yeah. for example. I don't know if this is the wrong way to put it, but they're they're a bit stronger on there's sufficient evidence yeah. in the Bible to create a basically full picture of ecclesiology. So right. there needs to be roles for widows. There needs to be church membership because, for example, in Acts, they they can count the amount of members that are enrolled. And the implication, I think, for like the uh, serving the poor widows and so on implies members. So they, they kind of have this, um, yeah. but not to be too polemical, it almost feels like they're reconstructing a history behind the textual evidence and then saying whatever that structure behind the textual evidence is, that's what the church needs to be. And I think it's useful and helpful to think that way, but I, I'm not sure I would go as far as they would. But um, yeah, and you know go on. What's crucial about that? that point about constructing something behind the text. This is, I think, one of Hooker's most brilliant insights is he says, look, what, ha what happened in the medieval church? What happened in the medieval church was the text scripture was not enough. Uh, there was this, there was this need that the church needed more, it needed more information. And so on top of the text of scripture grows up this whole idea of these unwritten traditions, uh, that, that are they're just supposed to be sort of they're there behind and under the text um, these these magisterial uh, these declarations of the magisterium where the pope can sort of say you know this isn't here's what the text means uh, and so and he says the whole point of the reformation was to cut off those accretions and get back to just the text of scripture as authoritative well what happens within just a few decades of that is protestants are saying yeah but the bible doesn't tell us um doesn't give us enough information and we really need information for you know these questions of church government and liturgy and so on but because they're protestants they can't they can't say they can't come right come right out and say well but there's these unwritten traditions or there's this authoritative magistrate they can't do that so they have to pretend that they're still functioning within sola scriptura but what they inevitably do is they're forced to invent effectively um an unwritten text and that then becomes the the basis for many of their statements. And so he 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 points out various places where the um, the Puritans were doing this, as they were they were essentially saying, well, you know, what we we know that you know we know that Paul must have done such and such, you know, even though it doesn't say it in the text, we know Paul must have done such and such, and that's and that's authoritative for us because Paul did it, right? Um, and he's like, no, 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 wait a minute, you, you don't know any of that, um, and the only reason you saying that is because you have this compulsion to make the bible give answers to certain questions that it doesn't actually give answers to yeah i think that's very insightful and it does seem to be sort of a temptation i mean we had this in my area where i did biblical scholarship back in the day um there was this idea in the late 20th century that you could discern the mind of biblical authors, meaning not just what they said, but what they must have thought. And so there's this kind of, by application, almost a right and necessary consequence of the, the, the mindset and thinking of a biblical author. But eventually people realize that's sort of like psychological depth. When you have, realistically, the Bible's a tiny amount of literature, like you have, I don't know, the book of Jonah or something. It's this tiny little thing. And you're like, this is what Jonah's mind was. Well, no, you don't know that. But you do know what the text says. And some of the older authors, I think, are maybe a little bit wiser when I think of someone like Origen who talks about the text having its own will and desires. 
seems to correspond better to what Hebrews four says that the uh, the word is alive. Um, yeah. Okay, so I want to keep on this topic, but just slightly pivot. So recently, like, so it's on Hooker. Um, I, I listened to a lecture by Professor Kirby, who is out of McGill, I believe. He's a Hooker scholar. And he's, he basically presented Hooker as a Neoplatonist and as someone who reconciled the political and ecclesial governments by an analogy of a hypostatic union meaning the queen uh, is the personal unity of the two, uh, whatever, ecclesial and political governments. So two natures, one person, but essentially the queen is the resolution to that. What uh, is he reading Hooker correctly? And how do you articulate that? Sorry, there's just a, a little bit of a technology gap. So the question I had was Professor Kirby sees Hooker as a Neoplatonist and unites the two governments of, of church and state through the person of the queen. A sort of like analogy of the hypostatic union in terms of Christology, but not like not a literal one, just sort of a, a metaphorical application. So is he right? And not just is he right, but like just expand on that a little bit. Like, is he is he getting at the heart of Hooker or is he kind of just reading his own philosophical interest into him? And maybe you don't want to be that blunt because this is a podcast, but say whatever you want to say. Uh, yeah, I mean, the, the, the Neoplatonic point is a bit of a, um, hobby horse of his, I think. I mean, that isn't to say that there isn't, um, Neoplatonic influence in, in Hooker, uh, but I, I mean, th there certainly is, if you look at, um, yeah, there's, there's a lot of places where it appears, but particularly in his general framework of law in book one. Um, but on the other hand, the Neoplatonic influence is there pervasively through the Western tradition um, in Augustine, um, in uh, Aquinas, you know, but people know Aquinas is the great, you know, re, um, retriever of Aristotle. But what Aquinas is really doing is he's synthesizing the Aristotelian tradition with the Neoplatonic tradition, uh, which arguably, you know, you know, I mean, which are both of those are, you know, Aristotle is a student of Plato and so and the Neoplatonists are as well. So the traditions are not radically different to begin with necessarily. Um, so it's not obvious to me that Hooker is a sort of particularly uniquely distinctively Neoplatonic thinker as so much as he's drawing on Neoplatonic strands that are by this time deeply woven into the fabric of Western Christian theology. Um, that said, uh, so I don't beyond I don't want to comment sort of beyond that on, on that particular part of his point. Um, his point about the kind of Christological analogy in Hooker's politics, I think, is is absolutely true. I mean, Hooker's in fact quite explicit on this in Book Eight, and uh, and and some form of Christological. Again, I would say this Hooker isn't distinctive um, in 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 drawing on that. I think perhaps the way he does it is. Um, is distinctive, but some form of Christological analogy for thinking about church and state uh, is commonplace throughout the later Middle Ages. Um, there's, the, of course, the classic book on this, Ernst Kantorvik's The King's Two Bodies, uh, and and everyone's sort of playing with it to some extent and, and then emphasizing it differently. So, um, you know, Part of the background of this is the two kingdoms theology coming out of the Reformation. Um, and then the two kingdoms theology 
Christ is reigning, you know, both, they're both kingdoms of Christ. They're both, the better term would be reigns, um, two reigns of Christ, two, um, two forms of, two forms, two rules, two forms of rule. The two ways in which Christ rules over the world, he rules over it spiritually and directly for redemptive purposes. Um, and the church is sort of the institutional embodiment of that or, or institutional manifestation of that um and then he rules over it uh in a in an indirect mediated way through for civil purposes um uh to sustain sustain the created order right now um and that and the the state what we now call the state would be the institutional embodiment of that now um there's what Hooker is responding to is what he sees as a kind of uh, Nestorianizing separation of um, church and state in 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 the, the the theology of Thomas Cartwright, the Puritan to whom he's responding. Mm. So for Cartwright, that two kingdoms theology manifests in um, two separate bodies. The church is a as an institution is is a a sort of redemptive spiritual body and the state or commonwealth is a temporal body uh, and that Christ in his human nature um, it's actually you might think the human nature relates to the temporal government and the divine nature represent, relates to the spiritual government it's actually kind of the other way around because it's Christ in his divine nature before his incarnation ruled over all the kingdoms of the world. Then Christ, when he becomes human, for, Christ becomes human for the sake of redeeming the church, right? So the church, Christ rules over in his human nature, state he rules over in his divine nature. Um, and Hooker says, no, that's, um, it's, the, it's the same Christ. Um, and so your, your Christological anal analogy is, is sort of is bifurcating Christ in a, in a Nestorian fashion. And if we actually believe that the two natures are co-inherent in one person uh, and are, and all the operations, right? Christ in all his operations works both according to his divine and human nature, right? There's not like some things he does as God and some things he does as man. Therefore um, we should see the church and commonwealth, um, as sort of distinguishable just as we distinguish the two natures but not separable the two are are sort of both operative in all the same acts and all the same people and so he says there's a personal union just as there's a personal union of the two natures in christ there's a personal union of the two natures of church and commonwealth in the queen as the head of both right mm -hmm. um Anyways, this is yeah. So this is this is in this is in book eight of Hooker. This is I think Kirby's biggest contribution, probably to Hooker scholarship, is tracing this out. And I I do a fair bit with this in my um, chapter six in my own book on Hooker, um, Peril and Promise of Christian Liberty. So, so um, this is obviously going to make sense in the 16th century when you have a Christian Commonwealth with a monarchy. But I'm going to guess in the United States today, most Christians would not want sitting president to be the personal union of state and church so like is there a, a forward going application or w was his insight merely just a settlement that made sense 
in a, a Christian commonwealth in the 16th century? In other words, is it just, yeah. is it occasional or is it somehow universally relevant? Um, I think, yeah, that there's elements of both. Um, and this is where we maybe take a step back from the Christology. Um, I'll, I'll maybe we'll bracket that for a second and then maybe try and come back to it. Um, but say sort of another thing that Hooker has in his toolkit is Aristotelian philosophical categories. And so Hooker frame starts out book eight, which is his defense of this, the, the, the particular form of religious establishment, the Church of England, uh, by basically making Aristotelian arguments about the nature of and purpose of government, right? The purpose of government is to enable men to live well and virtuously, um, to, to live, since man is both body and soul, to live well, he has to be, you know, well-ordered in both body and soul. And so, therefore, uh, the magistrate who seeks the happiness and flourishing of the community is concerned with the good order of both body and soul of his people. And since um, religion is the sort of highest act of the soul, and religion is that which is contributes to Hooker as a an argument in book five, I've published on this recently, where he um, kind of shows shows how the various cardinal virtues, justice, temperance, prudence, etc., uh, they're not, it, it's possible to have them in some measure without, um, well, actually, I, I mean, Hooker would say it's not possible to have them in any measure without some kind of religious sensibility. Um, so you need some kind of religion really to anchor these virtues at all. And then you need the truest and most perfect religion, the Christian religion, to have the truest and most perfect form of these virtues, right? So then if you want a commonwealth that's just ordered toward justice, you actually need to promote Christianity as that which um, makes possible justice, right? So Hooker says, basically, on Aristotelian principles, every government will promote some kind of religious um, vision as the, um, the kind of organizing telos for the society. And I think, you know, that's, that's maybe a generation ago, people would be like, no, that's not necessary. You can have a totally neutral procedural, you know, liberal order that doesn't privilege any religion over others. I think now it's sort of more obvious to people, no, in fact, we've just, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. Uh, government does need some concept of the highest end. <laughs> and our contemporary sort of radical progressive governments are pursuing a, their own kind of religious vision, right? So on that account, Hooker gives a kind of, um, I think, a, a philosophical argument for why some kind of public Christianity, um, some, or some kind of public religion is inevitable. That being the case, we should want it to be the right religion. And so therefore, some kind of public promotion of Christianity is always desirable. It doesn't have to look like um, the Elizabethan settlement, Hooker does recognize that, but he says it has to take some kind of form hmm. even today. I think the older writers called that piety. So different than how we mean it today, but piety is this idea of sort of public worship. Like, and when I say older writers, I mean like 2,500 <laughs> years ago, older writers, uh, like the, the Greeks and so on. Okay, so that makes sense. And it kind of leads me a little bit to maybe the last topic on to Hooker, that I feel like is connected to our prior conversation, but maybe it'll seem indirect. Um, Hooker has this distinction of law. It's a big deal for him. So there's eternal law, 
natural law. Can't remember. He probably calls it like a, a scriptural law, something to that effect. And he's able to distinguish these things out and how it connects. As I think earlier, we talked about people sometimes try to use the text and build the history behind it to sort of interpret things and create structures. But I don't think Hooker necessarily needs to do that because he has a expansive view of, of law in both nature as revealed by God in nature and in scripture, which would be whatever scriptural law. And this isn't unique to him. I mean, I think Herman Bovink, who would be a, a kind of a neo-Calvinist writer, says that general revelation is the foundation for a special revelation. Like you need to know how to do grammar before you even read a book, you know, <laughs> like you, you just need to have the grammar is not biblical. It's before the Bible, but you need it to understand the Bible just at a, at a very simplistic level. If I read the word boat in Jonah, I need to know what a boat was 3000 years ago. So I need to have history and so on. Um, So maybe just that's a piece of the discussion that I think is prominent in Hooker, but virtually evacuated from, well, maybe our discourse is in it, but the, the public discourse, nobody's talking about natural law in like the broader evangelical church, really, except for, yeah, there's, there, there is a group, of course, but the, the nerds. So why is that so important to him? And why do we seemingly not care about that anymore? Maybe that's that's too big of a question, but you can narrow it as, as the way that you want it to narrow it. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I think you've given a good summary of the kind of overall logic there, right? That there is um, there is a there is a text underlying and before and behind the text. And that is the text of general revelation um, inscribed in the human mind and human heart uh, that the sort of presupposed rules of um, the presupposed rules of logic that are, you know, before and behind the biblical text um and then as you say there's all kinds of particular historical things the linguistic things that we need to know to understand the text uh and so yeah so that was and that was that was universally you know pretty universally understood um for for much of you know universally for much of anyway that's but it was it was understood for most of church history the, the early the reformers understood when they talked about sola scriptura uh they didn't mean scripture to the exclusion of all natural reason. Um, now, why that changes, um, well, and I'll say, you know, one reason why it's important for Hooker, I would say, is, um, you know, going back to the point I was saying earlier, it is, it is absolutely inevitable that we, that to read the text, to read and apply the text, we will draw on things outside of the text, right? We will draw on, historical knowledge or historical guesswork, if we don't have knowledge, uh, we'll draw on our own assumptions, our own kind of philosophy, whether that's a formal philosophy or, or kind of, you know, poorly formed pop philosophy, uh, whatever it is, as you say, the, the text requires context, the text requires subtext. And so we will supply those things whenever we're reading and applying the text. The problem is we have to know that we're doing that and we need to have some kind of principled way of doing that. Otherwise, we'll pretend we aren't. And we'll say, well, I'm just getting this straight from the Bible, you know, and anyone who does anyone who disagrees with me disagrees with the Bible. And Hooker would be like, no, no, hold on a second here. You're not getting that straight from the Bible. And, 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 and I'm not getting my view straight from the Bible either. Both of us are getting it from the Bible with refracted through the lens of these various, you know, philosophical assumptions or whatever. So um, now we need that means that we, we can't just talk about the text. We got to talk about our philosophical assumptions as well. Um, we we got to talk about this, these historical 
data that we're bringing to it, right? The actual disagreement might lie outside the text. And if you don't realize that, then you're going to turn every part of his concern is you raise the stakes of every debate, right? If the only thing we're dealing with is the text and we disagree, well, then that must be because you don't take the text seriously, you know, and so, or maybe because you don't actually have the spirit, of, you don't actually have the spirit, so you're unable to read the text. It's, you know, it's, you're blinded. Um, whereas, in fact, if if we're using the text plus, you know, natural law or plus historical data or whatever, then we might be disagreeing. We might both love the text, respect the text, be moved by the spirit, you know, et cetera, but we might still disagree because of these other things. And so then we need to actually... That makes the, that makes our disagreements more manageable because we can sort of take them out of the sphere of you know do you love Jesus or not right um, yeah so that, you know, that's that's why it's important to him you know in terms of um, I'll, I'll pause for a minute I didn't if you want me to come back to the why we no lost no that, that's helpful I think there's just uh, there is there's a basic sense that we have if you, from a Christian perspective you might say we're creating the God's image we have a basic ability to know something that can't can't be true and not true in the same relation at the same time. And whatever that basic thing is, you already have it before you read the Bible. And it's a necessary common principle, you might say, or a common notion, if you're going to use old fogey language. Um, okay, so we have roughly 10 minutes left. So we could keep going on Hooker, which is fascinating because I like him a lot. Obviously, you've spent whatever, like a decade on him or, or longer. Um, but I want to ask briefly about John Davenant and the Davenant Institute. And it's kind of a, it's a, it's a twin question. So you founded the Davenant Institute. I'm on the board for the Davenant Institute. So obviously we both like it. Um, I, presumably you more so because you founded it. So I want you to tell me who John Davenant is and why his name inspired the Davenant Institute. And I can already guess why you didn't call it the Hooker Institute, but go on. Sorry, you froze up there again for me a bit. Oh, okay. You, I just said, why yeah. don't you explain to me why you founded the Davenant Institute yeah. and called it the Davenant Institute yeah. instead of the Hooker Institute? But yeah. I said I could already <laughs> guess why. Yeah. Well, yes, right. That is That was the joke in, in all seriousness that if, if I'd had my druthers, I, I would have called it the Hooker Institute, but for obvious reasons, couldn't. So um, look for another suitable name. And, um, you know, Davenant has a nice, nice nice ring to it um but uh but john davenant in many ways models the kind of um Christ christian scholarship in service of church and commonwealth that uh, we're seeking to replicate uh in terms of his theological identity he he sits sort of squarely in this english reformed tradition he's a bishop bishop of salisbury um you know, an Anglican theologian, but definitely sees himself as part of the international brotherhood of reformed churches. So he's someone that non-Anglicans, I think, reformed folks can can look to as well. Uh, and he wants to, but he, 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 he wants, he's pushing back. It's at the time when reformed orthodoxy is in some ways hardening and narrowing. At least there's a, there's a strong pressures to do that, to take what was initially a fairly broad umbrella um, in the 16th century and to give it to sort of make it more strict and precise. Uh, and he wants to leave more, more room for disagreement. He wants, he doesn't want the reformed churches, you know, to ever get to the point where like, you know, they'd have to excommunicate Augustine if he were alive at that time. But I mean, that's, he's often coming back to that. He's like, he's like, you know, um, we want to be, 
we want to look to the church fathers and um, and we can we can build on the church fathers. But if we're going to get to the point where we're saying like, you know, no, these are the boundaries of orthodoxy and we've like, you know, put the boundaries of orthodoxy such that Augustine's outside of them. You know, maybe we've we've gotten too too narrow minded here. Uh, but the thing about Davenant's pursuit of reformed Catholicity that I think is so important and that we are so inspired by is quite often people, you know, say, okay, you know, to, to be very pr precise about your terminology and to be very scholastic and so on, that's what these kind of narrow-minded dogmatic people do, like, right? Anyone who's sort of trying to make all these scholastic distinctions, they must be doing it because they want to define the boundaries of it, orthodoxy very narrowly. And then conversely, anybody who, you know, wants to say, no, 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 let's, let's be more inclusive, let's be more ecumenical, whatever, they almost always do it through a kind of watered down least common denominator thing where they, they're just being very doctrinally fuzzy. And what Davenant was convinced was that the, the real way to bring peace and unity uh, in the church without sacrificing orthodoxy, you, you didn't just kind of get vague and fuzzy, you got very, very precise. He's very, very precise in his language. He's very scholastic in his methodology. And uh, his view is that by being very, very clear about what we mean by terms, we can we can get to the bottom of our disagreements and say, is this actually a disagreement? Do we actually disagree on a matter of substance or do we just use different terminology? If we do disagree on a matter of substance, how central to the foundations of the Christian faith is this matter? Is it a foundational matter? Is it kind of, you know, an out on the skinny branches matter, right? So, um, he wants to use precision, uh, precision in pursuit of peace, I would say. And I think I'd say that's that's what we're seeking to do at the Davin Institute. That's a good phrase. Precision in the pursuit of peace. Also, it's, it's all P words. So it's great. Um, it's funny. You said if you make the borders of orthodoxy exclude Augustine, it's a problem. I kind of find it funny today that if you're a Baptist or an evangelical in general, you often at Halloween lionize Martin Luther. But it's highly unlikely he could be part of any of our churches. He believed in baptismal regeneration really clearly, I think. Right. Uh, but, but let me clarify. He actually believes the infant has faith and was generated on the basis of faith. So he's a credal Baptist, so Baptists should like him. Uh, and a number of other odd beliefs, but odd to us anyways. And yet we still lionize him. So I think sometimes we are a little bit of contradictions. One thing you didn't mention, and maybe I'm wrong, but I'm, I'm nearly certain I'm correct. Davenant was an English attendee at Dort, right? Okay, yeah. So the Synod at Dort, so he has yeah. like these reformed uh, credentials too. Well, and that's what I'm referring, yeah, that's what I was referring to where I said he, he wants to make sure that the reformed do not so narrow the boundaries as to exclude, um, you know, large swaths of people who would have been considered reformed a generation earlier. So, you know, that's, he's at Dort, he's the kind of theological um theological leader the intellectual leader of the of the english delegation there and he exerts i mean there's hundred there's over a hundred delegates um but he by virtue of you know partly by virtue of his status as a bishop and partly by virtue of his sheer intellectual horsepower he exerts a very strong gravitational pull over the other delegates uh and is able to significantly influence the deliberations there so that basically if it had been left up to the dutch delegates alone they would have defined a number of points much more narrowly in a way that a number of non-Dutch reformed churches couldn't necessarily sign on to. 
Um, and, and that also would have, is another thing Davenant was concerned about. Although Lutherans were not represented at the Synod of Dort, Davenant's hope was that the, you know, the rift with the Lutherans would be a temporary one and that they could hopefully lay the foundations for future reunion. And his concern was that the way that the Synod was going was actually going to make it, make reunion completely impossible and unthinkable by basically anathematizing the Lutherans. So uh, Davenant's very, was very influential in trying to moderate the proceedings at Dort um, and successful to a large extent. Mm. Well, I remember reading his uh, book on justification, and I still remember this being incredibly helpful in, in terms of his scholastic distinctions. He's able to use the word the words infusus and habitus with reference to justification and in a way that actually fits with Reformed theology. I don't know. I don't, I don't know why I brought that up, but just it's one of those things I remember reading and finding incredibly helpful when I because I because I read a lot of like medieval stuff and, and, and you know Roman church stuff. And that's that kind of language is often debated language. But right. it's not that the words themselves are bad in and of themselves, which I think sometimes when you think of infusis or something, you might assume that. But it is how you're using them and integrate them into a, into your theology. So we have a couple minutes here. I mean, we can we can do four minutes if you really wanted to. But um, tell me in the last couple of minutes why people what Davenant Institute is if you know, your elevator pitch and some stuff that people listening can be like, hey, I want to buy those books or I want to take a class. Like, what's give the big picture here for someone who doesn't yeah. know Davenant? Yeah, Davenant is a network of scholars and pastors and theologically concerned lay people who are dedicated to uh, retrieving the riches of Christian wisdom um, from the resources of classical Protestantism, uh, going to figures like Hooker, like Davenant, like the the best theology and philosophy and, and ethics and politics uh, that was coming out of the, the first century of the Reformation, and saying, what does that, how could a how could a retrieval of this um, really help um, refine and mature our Christian witness today? You know, um, and, you know, even on things like, you know, it, it might seem at first glance like it's not going to be relevant, but I think even on very cutting edge questions like, you know, the, the, the debates we're having over transgenderism and sexuality and so on, we're not going to actually be able to address those well if we don't have a thick theological and philosophical anthropology an understanding of what the meaning of the human person and uh, have a good understanding of the meaning of the human person we need to go back to this earlier traditions um way of you know understanding of natural law and uh and way of you know analyzing human psychology in ways that that are often are quite illuminative um even, you know, when I read modern psychologists, you know, who are like, you know, it's amazing, you know, after doing this study, this randomized controlled experiment with, you know, 2000 subjects where we've discovered such and such. I'm like, yeah, that, you know, Aristotle talked about uh, <laughs> years ago, right? Um, so, um, yeah, so we, we think that this, this retrieval is actually profoundly practical in helping pastors and Christian leaders equip Christians for faithful public engagement today. And we do this through, um, three main three main avenues which is uh so retrieving resources or publications at the davenant press um at fontes magazine second through uh offering courses um in fact we have a degree program in classical protestantism at davenant hall which is predominantly online 
but also with some residential stuff, which leads over to the third thing. We, we do this through building friendship networks and community um, at our study center Davenant House and at other events across most of the U.S., but some in Canada, some in the U.S., or some in the U.K., I'll link all of this stuff too in the in the show description. But uh, yeah, that's incredible. Just to just to push on that practical point, like in Canada, a local newspaper called Ottawa Citizen, maybe this week, prior week, I can't remember, had a had a headline: um, "Physician assisted killing has created a boon in terms of organ harvesting in Canada." And in my province of Ontario. Uh, every time someone dies by uh, suicide, uh, euthanasia rather, Trillium, which is just a, a group, needs to be notified. And they're, they're the organ harvesting group. So probably by now, between 5 and 10% of all organ transfers are in my province from someone who's died by euthanasia. So medical assistance in dying. And that's going to grow. It's, it's, it's growing every year since it started. So our newspaper called it a boon, a boon in organs because people are dying. And then I recently read through the stories of public people who talked about why they wanted to apply for dying, the prescription of death. And it's all horrible. It's because of suffering and because they don't have they don't have sufficient care. Um, I have an article coming out on this, I think, in the, the US TGC in the near future. You can see the details on that. But if you don't know what a human being is, if you don't have these ancient resources, especially in Protestant thought, you're not going to have sufficient answers for the weirdness of our society. So Davin, in my view, is necessary in order just to be a human being in Canada today, a, a Protestant human being. <laughs> Thank Thanks, you. Bradford. Yeah. That's fun. Yep. Been a blast. <laughs>